I want to thank Research Consultants International for sponsoring today's podcast. They're a globally renowned lead generation firm that helps economic development organizations create real prospects. They've helped over 500 economic development organizations. Let me tell you exactly what they do. They facilitate one-on-one meetings for economic developers with corporate executives who will have projects soon. They can facilitate these meetings to where you travel to the corporate executive's office and meet them there, or you meet them at a trade show, or even have a conference call so you don't have to pay for travel. They recently launched a service called FDI 365, which provides you a lead a day of fast-growing companies that will be expanding soon. Their research has helped over $5 billion in projects get cited since inception. I encourage you to go to www.researchfdi.com to learn more about research consultants. As far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely the best lead generation firm in the business for economic development organizations. Call them now. They can help you create real prospects. Welcome to this week's episode of the Next Move Group We Are Jobs podcast, focused on creating economic growth for small to mid sized companies, communities, and nonprofit organizations. I'm Chad Chancellor, co founder of Next Move Group. Today we got a special guest with us, Rod Miller. Rod is the CEO of Invest Puerto Rico, and frankly, he's one of the best known economic developers in the country. Prior to running to Puerto Rico, Economic Development Organization. Rod served as Economic Development CEO in both New Orleans and Detroit. Prior to that, he was Economic Development Staff Member in Phoenix and Baton Rouge. He's been ranked a top 50 economic developer by Consultants Connect, and IEDC actually awarded him as the best young economic developer in the country a few years ago. Rod's got a master's in public policy from Harvard. So, Rod, it is an honor to have such a smart, intelligent guest with us today. I hope I can ask questions to keep up with you, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. I got to know you during your time in New Orleans, and you're still uh, so well thought of here for the job you did here. So I just respect you very much and have followed your career and i'm very excited to have you with us here today on our program thank you thank you for having me you know one of the reasons i respect you so much is is you did new orleans then detroit then flint i know you did some work in flint michigan after the uh, after the water crisis so considering you know you you sort of you you sort of handled disaster situations and uh and went into places that were really in in trouble what uh what motivates you what's your passion why are you drawn to doing this work Well, it's two things. One is an optimism. There's an optimism that I believe that there are opportunities in these markets. Not only are there opportunities in these markets, I think by and large, the people in these markets uh, and the assets of these markets are largely seen as deficits when they actually should be seen seen as selling points. The approach is fundamentally an approach where you go in and you say, there is untapped value here. And this market is underperforming because that untapped value isn't appreciated. So we try to, I try to find ways to tap into that value and actually elevate that value. And, and in many cases, it's elevating the value and recognizing that there are basic things because the infrastructure hasn't been in place that can be done that can have momentous impact. So like having a business retention expansion program, for example, a, a functioning business retention expansion program is a great thing that you know can take, take you uh, much further. So there are other things like that that you really want to do to really figure out how to grow the economy. So how did you get into economic development? Did you know about this as a child or just stumble into it? Or 
I totally stumbled into it. But what I what I knew when I when I went to college, I studied international business, and I knew I wanted to work, you know, in business because I like money and I believed in capitalism, <laughs> and I knew I wanted to do international stuff because I I like traveling and I like foreign cultures. Uh, and then, you know, after getting out into the real world, and I worked in privatization uh, and, and uh, management consulting, doing a lot of privatization work initially, I quickly realized that even though a lot of the en entities that were focused on consulting to the public sector, they were really more, they were, they were all about making money. And I really wanted to figure out how to have impact. And so I stumbled into economic development in 2003. I moved to Phoenix uh, in 2003, 2004 with no job because one of my classmates was out there and I just felt like it'd be something different to do and got a job in economic development and been doing it ever since. And when did you leave New Orleans? I can't remember now. I left New Orleans, you know what, in 2014. And uh, New Orleans was an amazing experience because there was so much change happening in the city at the time. And just to see how it continues to grow and thrive is, is impressive. So Rod left New Orleans in 14. That's where I live. So five years later, I can promise you, he still talked about his name is still talked about a lot. So, so you obviously made a lasting impact here. Talk about your thoughts on changing and uh, getting people out of poverty. I, I know you've got some thoughts on it. I read an article that you wrote before we started this podcast and, and uh, talk about why you think it's so hard to do. And, and, and if, some, if, if a community out there is listed, whether they're a small town or a big city and, and they've only can focus on two or three things to, to try to, to try to lift people out of it, what would you advise them to consider? So the first thing I think you mentioned a small town or a big city, the reality is that cities, municipalities play an outsized role in actually poverty alleviation. So I think for, for municipalities to recognize that they actually can drive that conversation. Why are the reasons that municipalities can drive that conversation? One is because they, they have the bully pulpit and can convene different players. Uh, number two is they have a big spend. So most of the time, whether it's through their procurement processes, and so that, that spend you know, really dictates, can, can, can actually add jobs to the economy and actually help local small businesses thrive and prosper. So if I were you know, giving advice to some municipality uh, or a small town around how to lift people out of poverty, number one is I would say, Recognize that people are your greatest assets, so you got to invest in your people. So workforce development is number one. Uh, and number two is entrepreneurship. And number three is uh, spend your dollars with your values. Your, your, value, your dollar spend should reflect your values. So if you believe that local businesses can and should do better, spend your dollars with local businesses in your community. And, and take us back. I'm sure you were in conversations in New Orleans after Katrina. So New Orleans is now having tremendous success recruiting software development companies. That had to be a, a, a policy change. That had to be a mindset. There had to be strategy behind that. We just didn't wake up in New Orleans one day and 2,000 software jobs show up. So what was the, what was the strategy behind that and, and what kind of policy did you help drive to, to make that happen? Well, well, the critical driver of investment decisions overall is always talent. But in particular, when you're talking about um, software jobs, there's a very particular demographic of young designers, young engineers, those sorts of things, software uh, uh, programmers. And so what we were able to do in New Orleans is that we were able to create the buzz and the momentum to drive that population base. So there was a very intentional effort in concert between the New Orleans Business Alliance, GNO Inc., 
um, uh, 504 and other agencies to drive young people, uh, uh, Idea Village, drive young people to the market, that fit that demographic. So that was number one. Number two was we were very aggressive in overselling it. It was, you know, it's kind of like, you know what, we're going to promise a lot in terms of our market's ability to deliver, and we're going to work like hell to make sure it happens. So for example, there was a case, and I want to say, I'm not going to say what company it was, but there was a case where there was a company who wanted to know if they could find the workers that they were looking for in New Orleans. There was a blind ad that was run. Uh, the blind ad basically described the types of jobs and where it was, and, that, and describe the company without saying what it was. And it was, I think, maybe 50 or 60 jobs. There was something like, you know, seven or 800 different applicants that applied for that job from around the globe. So that showed the company that, that we could, in, very, in a very real way, um, deliver in terms of the workforce that they needed. Another example, of course, is GE uh, Capital's Center of uh, Excellence and Training there. That was a very strategic partnership uh, between, you know, GE Capital, uh, the University of, uh, of New Orleans, LED. And so one of the things that we were very good about in New Orleans was getting all hands on deck between the different agencies, the city departments, the state, uh, the universities to provide comprehensive solutions so companies could thrive. And so that was the strategy. It was, you know what, and know what New Orleans does better than anywhere else is throw a party. So, you know, we could create buzz uh, whether it was at major conferences and events around the country or whether it was at home, we could create buzz around ideas and concepts and get people to show out. And that buzz, that steak, that uh, sizzle ultimately turned into steak. Well, it's exciting to live here. Just in, just in my block, there's two new hotels uh, a block away and, and mixed juice. And it's just, it's, it's great. And, but you also created a buzz in Detroit. I have not been to Detroit in the last two or three years, but within the last two or three months, I've had people say, hey, have you been to Detroit lately? Downtown's coming back and people seem to be bragging about it. So talk about, that was probably the biggest. When you went there, I remember people were saying, you know, Detroit's days are over. How did you, how did you start that turnaround? So Detroit was uh, Detroit was an interesting <laughs> was an interesting market, very different than New Orleans, even though uh, uh, even though some of the challenges were the were the same, but the kind of the approach and the culture was very very different. In Detroit, a lot of it was a lot of what makes communities that have been battered those communities uh, also gives them a certain flavor. And so part of our job is very much marketing. And so Detroit, we were very successful at marketing this image of a city that, you know what, a city that was on its hill, but it doesn't quit. Detroit versus everybody, a very grimy, gritty city that, you know, that uh, represents the best of America, that put the whole, whole world on wheels. So we were able to tell that story and really try to build uh, momentum around this idea that, you know what, what I would tell site selectors and when I was talking about New Orleans is I would say, you know what, you remember that old song or that old album by TLC in the 80s, Crazy Sexy Cool. And I say the crazy sexy cool <laughs> that you find, you know, in our food and in our music and in our art that translates into innovation in your company. And in Detroit, what I would say is we make things. Detroit knows how to make things, whether it's Shinola watches or Cadillacs. And so being able to really get, capture the essence of the value proposition of, the, of that community was a big part of the come around, turnaround. And also really being able to accelerate 
uh, small business growth. So in Detroit, I would say I probably work with more small and medium-sized businesses than anywhere I've ever worked. And, and it's largely because, because of some of the economic challenges, there weren't enough jobs in the market. So young people in Detroit were like, oh, we're out here hustling. Detroit hustles harder. And what we try to do is put an economic development infrastructure around those local small businesses through programs like Motor City Match, uh, which is now becoming a national model around how to revitalize neighborhoods, or our D2D program, which we grew the spend from $500 million to over $800 million in three years between local businesses and major companies. Those are the types of things that we did to really figure out how do we actually you know, elevate that economy and, 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 and change the narrative. Right. There's a lot of young economic developers that listen to this podcast, and, and I think they're going to listen to you and be inspired by, uh, by your career. What's your advice to, to somebody young, maybe a, a junior level project manager, been in the business a year or two, that wants to one day be a Rod Miller? What, what's your career tips? Oh, I've, I've got a few. So one is don't be afraid. Number one is don't be afraid. You never, if you look at my career, I've bounced around a little bit. And part of that was being willing to take a risk and go somewhere when, you know, it doesn't necessarily seem like the biggest opportunity or the best opportunity. And this is no offense to, to my role in New Orleans, but that was my first CEO job. Your first CEO job is normally a stinker. So I went to my first CEO job. I didn't get a pay raise at all. I had an organization that didn't have a budget that was secure. And I said, well, that's why I'm going there, because that's what I'm going to do and establish hopefully something that will be strong. So don't be afraid to take risks, number one. Number two is be a student of your craft. So economic development is, it is a practice. Unfortunately, it's one, I'd say the only job that's probably less respected than economic development is teachers, because everybody thinks they can do economic development and everybody thinks they can teach. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and so, so, but it is a craft. There are, it's an art, but it's also a science. So be a student of economic development and learn about economic development. Number three is be prepared. Um, I always try to be the most prepared person in the room. It's when I open my mouth, I'm like, I want to say something substantive. But in order to be able to say something substantive, you have to be a student of your craft and you have to be up on current events and follow what's happening in, in, the, in the field around the country and around the world. And then the last piece of advice I would say is um, write. Uh, one of the ways that you know you become an expert is actually forcing yourself to think about the work that you do and how it's different than how others may be approaching that work. So over the years, I've written a lot on economic competitiveness. I've written a lot on poverty. I've written a lot on trade and investment. And if you write and if you write and you study, what it does is it elevates your posture so that other people that may not be in your circle will see your work and uh, start to recognize it and call on you. I know right now you're the CEO of Invest Puerto Rico. So why don't you sort of walk us through what you're doing right now for Puerto Rico? Give us the Puerto Rico story. Puerto Rico is a fascinating place. Uh, and I knew a little bit about it before I came here, but I've been here on the ground in Puerto Rico not quite six months. Uh, the organization Invest Puerto Rico was set up as a public-private partnership about two years ago, specifically with the aim of being focused on driving private uh, investment to the island. When I started, what I quickly saw is that, you know, what they had in abundance were things that they didn't actually realize. Many of the people in Puerto Rico actually didn't realize the value of what they had. So you're talking about a place that's got, you know, in San Juan in particular, you've got population density. And in a few other places on the islands, you've got a lot of good institutions of higher learning. You've got an economy that is 48% uh, of its manufacturing. Of that manufacturing, a large portion of it is bio and, and pharma manufacturing. We actually have the highest uh, concentration per square mile, square mile of, of uh, pharma manufacturing of anywhere in the world. We've also got very strong 
in uh, aerospace. So on the west side of the island, you've got uh, uh, many, a lot of aerospace manufacturing. So that's you know what we've got kind of at the core of it. But what we're adding on is a, a focus on professional services, back office software. In the last few years, say last four or five years, what, what's happened is that there's been the emergence of a, of a startup ecosystem. So you've got a lot of startup companies moving here. And so Puerto Rico, at the core of its value proposition is you've got people that are largely bilingual. You've got access to the, all the Americas, North America and South America. Um, you've got one of the largest islands in the Caribbean. And you've got uh, a business uh, culture and a quality of life that's probably unparalleled. Now, I know you, uh, you were hiring New Orleans after Katrina, and I, and I remember the job that you did here. And so was that part of the, of the, uh, of the Puerto Rico thinking when they went out and reached you? Is it you, you knew how to handle a disaster situation, or how did that work into it? I think, you know, it was a combination of things. One is, I think, with the Katrina situation coming after a, a major storm and you have to rebuild an entire community, that creates tremendous opportunity. And I think that they saw that I had been in, in, the, in the role where I've had to figure out, okay, we actually don't have things working as they should just yet. While you're rebuilding, how do you rebuild a new economy in that process? So that's what I think the New Orleans experience brought. And then they looked at the Detroit experience going through bankruptcy and said, oh, wow, this guy also knows the pain of a place that's financially strapped and doesn't necessarily have all the dollars to make the investment. So this is kind of a combination of the New Orleans and Detroit experiences I had prior to coming here. And I know you've got a consulting firm, too. You just do a project or two a year that you, that you do. So talk about Ascendant Global and, uh, and, and the work you can do through it. Ascendant Global, you know, we, we're a boutique consulting company. And you know what? And if it isn't a real problem, if it isn't a really a big challenge, it probably doesn't make sense to call us. We like to work on the stuff that other people say can't be done. So we do things like we're working on right now an economic mobility uh, plan for the um, city of Cleveland. Uh, or, or it's not the city government, it's for a group called Cleveland 2030. So we're working on that, um, on that project. Um, we, we're finishing up an engagement right now with Living Cities, where we're working in five cities across the country, uh, trying to help them develop strategies to grow businesses owned by people of color. And I, we actually have a publication that'll be coming out in a couple of months, which is an implementation guide for cities on how to actually uh, elevate businesses of color and help them be sustainable. So those are the kinds of things that we like to work on. Here in Puerto Rico, actually, right after the storm, a few months after the storm, we came and we did some continuity planning with one of the, with the Manufacturing Extension Partnership to figure out how to help manufacturing companies, you know, stay up and running after disaster. So those are the kinds of engagements that we do. Um, we really like to focus on stuff where it's going to have impact in the near term, and it's ideally going to shift systems so that the, um, so that the market that we're working in will actually be better um, over time because of our work. And, and, and Rod's really well known for, for, for his policy work. So I know you're highly involved with IEDC. Was that something right from the start you were involved with, or, or you, you worked your way in as you moved along? So I've been a member of IADC, the International Economic Development Council, since 2006. I became a board member of IADC probably about 2012 or 13. And really, IADC, you know, it's, it's important because it really is shifting what the focus of economic developers are around the country. So I remember in 2012, 2013, something like that, a few of us board members, we got up in the board meeting and we said, if we don't work on issues of economic inclusion, you know what our country is doing because the demographics are shifting and we know that as the demographics shift in the country that we're going to have 
a large numbers of people of color, even larger numbers of people of color, and the demographics of, the, of, that, of that population are awful. So we've got to figure out how do we actually focus on economic inclusion. So those are the kinds of issues that we, we really try to elevate. We've gone, done stuff where we've gone, uh, I've gone to the White House several times with IDC to champion issues related to infrastructure investment because we see the rest of the world is investing massively in infrastructure and quite frankly their infrastructure in many cases uh, is quite is a lot better so being able to have these platforms that allow for us to advocate on a macro level because the you know economic development really is at the micro level but institutions like IDC really allow us to advocate on a macro level for policies that that affect everyone as we wind down we'll shift back to Puerto Rico just for for the last little section here of our of our podcast I'm amazed you got 48% manufacturing I, I had no I had no idea it was anywhere near that high so if people fly there now we have some businesses and manufacturers that hear this I mean is the island recovered you have good sites with infrastructure ready to go or what would they find you know the media always says the bad part of a storm so are you ready to go let me answer that in two ways the first ways is, is the same thing I said about New Orleans. If they come, we'll figure out how to make sure that we're ready to go so that we can deliver what they need. We've got a team that we're putting in place and that, we put, that I put in place here that's keenly focused on helping businesses have impact. Uh, so that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing I would say is that we're in transition and the beauty of the transition of the island is that massive investments are being made. Companies want to get into Puerto Rico now versus two years from now because right now is when all the investments are made and you can still get a deal from a, from a, a real estate perspective, and you can still be a, fair, a fairly big fish in a small pond. Um, so I, I think that now is the time to move to Puerto Rico. And then the last thing I would say is that Puerto Rico has the most aggressive incentives of any place I've ever seen. We don't want to. We don't start the conversation with incentives because we know that there is a real value proposition. But we end the conversation with incentives, and the, and the incentives conversation is four percent uh, income tax, uh, federal income tax for companies uh, that move to Puerto Rico. Uh, under several of the acts that we've got. And for individuals that move here that will be here at least six months and one day per year, um, their income tax can go down to zero if they declare themselves residents of Puerto Rico. So there are a lot of things from an income tax and from a property tax and other thing perspective that we can provide as well. Those are good incentives. And how do y'all do training? Is it done there like it is in the, in the States where you customize training or how do you train a, a workforce for a company? Absolutely. So we can provide customized training support. We've got a, a very robust university system. We've got good workforce training partners. It doesn't really matter what the, and remember on the manufacturing front, we've got 48% of our, our economy is manufacturing. So we've got a, a lot of uh, uh, organizations that we work with that can provide, you know, turnkey training in a fairly uh, short period of time. Well, Rod, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us today. We really appreciate it. We miss you in New Orleans and, and hope everything in Puerto Rico uh, works out very successfully for you. Thank you, Chad. It's good thank talking you. to you.